Hey, for those of you who are new, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at the River. I want to say how glad I am that you've come to worship with us today. Uh, I was thinking uh, about a story many, many years ago when my daughter was just 10 years old. She's like a graduate school type person now, so this was a long time ago. But she was 10, so that's fourth grade, right? Uh, California history module, you guys remember that? So I don't know why they feel like they need to tell 10-year-olds the whole Donner party thing. <laughs> but, you know, my kid is like a very, the highly sensitive soul before we knew what a highly sensitive person was. So she was laying there in bed at night, that thing where you like want to pray and let them go to sleep so you can have a little bit of life yourself. And she just like all, you know, could not sleep and just frightened to death. If you don't know the story of the Donner Party, maybe you're not a Californian. You know, 81 people back in the, I guess, 1940s or 1840s. I, fourth grade was a very long time ago for me. They're traveling from Illinois, you know, all the way out to California. They got stuck in somewhere between Utah and California in the Sierras in a terrible blizzard. And the consequences of their lostness were absolutely and totally gruesome. So my daughter, you know, visions of darkness and death just like overwhelming her little being. And uh, I was just in like gut reaction mode, you know. Uh, this was not like a wonderful parenting moment. But I kind of rushed in to try, to try to contain her fears. And I said something like, Let's try to reframe this positively, honey. Yeah. Like, maybe <laughs> she looked at me like I'm an insane person. Maybe, maybe we could think about, like, the, the power of the human spirit, you know, like what human beings can accomplish when they set their hearts to it. The, the will to survive in human people is a fantastic thing, and we need to be able to tap into that at times in our lives. How's that good? for a, like, toxic positivity, you know, coming from dad. Um, I still remember, she looked up at me, tears pouring down her cheeks, and uh, she said, what's so heroic about people eating their own families? <laughs> I thought, yeah, you're right, bad parenting. Just like, it was like a forgettable moment. The 10-year-old sees the truth. The reality is that uh, blizzards are awful things. Uh, they are deadly things. And one could look back at that story of the Donner Party and come to the really clear sense that nothing is more important on a long journey than the capacity to navigate reliably, especially in the blizzards of life. Whether those blizzards are literal, like in the Donner Party, or figurative, and I say figurative because I think we are in a stormy season of life. We are in a politically stormy season of life. The uh, presidential election is ramping up again. Uh, I don't think it takes like someone with a lot of uh, insight to say that the forecast is for increasing storms of Hatred and anger, that's what's on the docket for us. So we might ask in this year that we'll be dominated by a presidential election, 
Will we fare any better than we did last time, four years ago, which didn't go so great? Or maybe it's possible for you that while you're concerned, of course, about the presidential election, that you have your own personal storms. And it's like, I don't know, the nation will do whatever the nation will do, but it's possible to have financial storms or physical health storms that are frightening to the soul, emotional and vocational storms. What will we do with our lives? In the midst of whatever storm you might find yourself in, in the midst of whatever storm might be ahead for you, what gives you confidence that you can navigate towards a life that might be called good or even beautiful? Or if you're a church person, if you identify yourself as a disciple of Jesus, what gives you confidence that you could navigate through the awful storms we will find ourselves in and come out on the other side more holy rather than less holy? For thousands of years, spiritual pilgrims all over the world have been tuning in to the words of Jesus. So that's where we're going to start this fall. We're going to immerse ourselves into Jesus' longest teaching, a passage of scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the Gospel according to Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. And before I get into it, let me set up the context of it, because this long sermon comes in a broader narrative that the gospel writer is trying to tell us. Those of you who are careful writers might appreciate how Matthew has put together this story in a way that is absolutely unique compared to the other three gospel writers. Consider these parallels between Matthew and the Old Testament book of Exodus, which tells the story of how it is that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, uh, led by a man named Moses. Both of these stories, Matthew and Exodus, tell the story of the massacre of children at the hands of a paranoid, narcissistic ruler who would do anything to eliminate potential rivals. That happened at the birth of Moses, and then it happened again at the birth of Jesus. Matthew's the only one that tells us that. Both of these stories tell a story about passing through water, salvation or rescue at the experience of passing through water in the Exodus through the Red Sea, and in the New Testament gospel, Jesus being baptized, which was a total surprise because people around him thought he seemed like a holy person already. He didn't need to be baptized. But Jesus said, this is necessary for me to pass through the water. Both stories tell um, the narrative of the challenges of the wilderness. Uh, if you have children in our godly play program back behind me, or if you've told the stories, you know that the desert is a dangerous place. And both Exodus and Matthew are telling us that. God's people wandering through the wilderness on what should have been a two-week journey, turning into a 40-year journey because of how uh, disorienting the storms of life are. And Jesus, having been baptized, is driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness 
to confront our spiritual enemy, the accuser of our souls, Satan. And then both of these stories give a mountaintop manifesto, both Moses and then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, a mountaintop manifesto, a vision that is intended at a very high level to shape the soul of a people to dream of a land that they had never, ever been to before. Matthew is telling us something about Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus, like Moses, comes to set us free from a kingdom of violence and oppression and to lead us into a kingdom that is ruled by God, a kingdom in which there is love and justice that overflow to the least of these, a kingdom of unimaginable goodness. And the question in Exodus is, what dream will win the hearts of this people? And they're always wrestling with the dream of Egypt's promise, even though Egypt had enslaved them, they still were prone to the dream that promised them there were enough good things over there that you should probably go back. And Moses was giving them a vision from the mountain of God, trying to do a miraculous thing, trying to help these slave people for 400 years imagine a different kind of world and a different kind of esteem and a different kind of economy. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have the same struggle as those people. Which dream is most alive in our hearts? So let me read the text, and then uh, I'm going to invite you into uh, reading a portion of it as well. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. This referring not to his 12 closest disciples, but many disciples gathering to listen to his words. Disciples just means students, people who want to listen. And he began to teach, and he taught them, saying, now there's all these phrases, I'm going to say the first part, and I want you to read the second part. These are big, bold statements, so I don't want you to say them quietly. You, know, you don't have to yell them, but say them with some energy. He said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And now I want us to read this final verse all together. It's sort of a haunting verse, but let's say it together anyway. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, 
For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of God. These beautiful, haunting words. I want to get into the weeds of this, but let me make a couple of high-level comments. Number one, these are beautiful words that have stood the test of time. They're the kinds of words that people write on wall plaques or embroidered in pillows. They have, I think, the ring of truth, sort of like a song that gets stuck in your head even when you don't know what the song means. That ever happened to you? It's like, I love this song. I have no idea what it means, you know? These words of blessing are kind of like that. I think one part of their beauty and what draws us is that unlike uh, Moses' mountaintop manifesto, which were in the form of commands or prohibitions, thou shalt not do these things, Jesus speaks to people on this journey, promising them a life of blessing, flowing from the God whose heart overflows with blessing. These words are beautiful words. These words are powerful words. Consider these men, Tolstoy, Gandhi, and King, three great leaders in three generations on three different continents, all of whom stood against and ultimately overcame brutal oppressors. How did they do that? They held tightly to the words and to the dreams of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. They wrote about it and proclaimed it and put it in speeches and organized people around these values. And these words, these countercultural concepts provided fuel for mysterious courage for ordinary people, a new imagination of what could be the capacity to suffer at the hands of violent, brutal people until that new world did, in good measure, come into being. These words are powerful words, and no amount of embroidery on pillows should distract us from that fact that if we embodied these words, if they were etched on our hearts like some kind of tattoo, they would change our world as well. And finally, I want to say that these words are confusing words. Like I said a moment ago, they kind of have the effect of, that sounds true. I wonder what it means. I felt like that preparing for this message. What are we really talking about here? The Sermon on the Mount has its own section in the Library of Congress because generations of people have been trying to put together the pieces of the puzzle to say, what is Jesus saying about how we might live in this broken, sinful, and oftentimes wicked and violent world? There are many ways writers have put these pieces together. Let me just give you one. I'm going to suggest that an appropriate lens to look through these vast words is to group them into the beginning words talking about what it looks like when people in a sinful world long for God. And the second half of the Beatitudes, or blessing, that's what a Beatitude is, just a word of blessing. The second half of them talking about what it looks like 
in a sinful and broken world when people long for God's kingdom. So let's jump into it here. Through this lens, we could say that the first words of blessing are giving a description of what it might look like when a person in a broken world is longing for God more than anything else in their heart. This is an important thing to say because there are so many people, especially in like a progressive Bay Area, where there are imaginations for a kingdom. Most people want a world in which there is no racism, no hunger, uh, income inequality narrowed. But I want to suggest to you that we can never have that sort of kingdom unless we have a king who is wise and good, worthy of our worship, and worthy of our complete and total submission. And Jesus paints a picture of a people who are longing for such a king. He tells us that such a person is poor in spirit, that they know their deep need for God. Jesus here is not romanticizing the experience of poverty, though he loved people who were poor and called us to do the same. He is, I think, warning us about the dangers of wealth and privilege. And many of us have grown up in a world of wealth and privilege. We should not feel guilty about that, but we should be aware of how it forms our perspective of life. I always wanted to be at the top of my class, wasn't quite there, but tried to come close. Always wanted to work for a culture-shaping institution, right? Apple, Google, Facebook, all these places are trying to shape the world into a certain kind of image. We are a people who have privilege, have a sense of agency, and wield power easily. And these can be good gifts in the life of a disciple of Jesus. But we should be aware, I think, that privilege and wealth often form us as a people who despise neediness and weakness. Does anyone feel that? That when we are needy and weak, we feel uncomfortable in our friendship circles. Well, the reality is that we are all needy in the presence of God. We are all needy in the presence of God. And if we are not comfortable with that experience of neediness, we will never get close to God. I think it's one of the reasons why we Silicon Valley people so often struggle with prayer. Like school, we want to master prayer. You know, we want to get an A in prayer. We want to know how to do it so that we never make mistakes. We want to have it all tightly sewn up in an equation. And we just can't do it. And we get discouraged. And sometimes we feel like we failed. How many of us have ever been in groups where it's like, hey, could someone open our time in prayer? And everyone's like, how about that person? <laughs> you know, I don't want to pray out loud. We love to succeed. And the funny thing is that I think most of us intuitively know that when we are in circles of people who think of themselves as a spiritual success, when we are in Bible studies or whatever grouping where you know, there's people who feel like they have 
all of the answers and they know what that word meant and they know what the context of this word is and they know everything that you didn't know. And sometimes we are that person, you know. That's like the worst person in the group, right? No one wants to hang out with that person because we know in our inner being that in the presence of God, there is a sense of humility that is most appropriate. And the good news is then that if you don't feel like the valedictorian of your spiritual group, if you feel like a spiritual simpleton, the kingdom of heaven is yours. It is for you. There were all kinds of elite Jesus, people that Jesus could have chosen as his followers. He bypassed them all for people who had flunked out of rabbinical schools. The kingdom belonged to the humble, to the people who just came to him, reaching out to touch the hem of his garment, saying, I don't know where I'm going today. Would you help me? Jesus says, the kingdom is yours. He blessed those who mourn. Jesus blesses the person who is in tune with pain, the pain that's out there in the world and the pain that is deep within every human heart. In a broken world, mourning is intertwined with love. If you do not know how to mourn alongside others, you will not know how to love them very well. In a world of pain, we will not be mature people if we do not make space to mourn with one another. And so we should take stock of the things that keep us from mourning well, even when deep inside we know that we want to be mourning. Technology does that to us sometimes. Technology, of course, is not all bad, but we can develop a world a worldview in which we like to solve problems. And problems that can be solved, by all means, should be solved, it would be great. But I hope you've been around this globe long enough to know that people don't like to be fixed. You know, And when people try to fix us, we do not feel love. We should not treat people like equations. And if we want to gather them and bless them and be with them, we have to mourn with them. We live in an entertainment culture. And uh, I love going to the movies or you know, watching Hulu, all this kind of stuff. But an entertainment culture can train us to be people who turn away from the world's problems and who turn away from our own problems. And I wonder if there are people here today that need to mourn something deep within, maybe something from long ago, or maybe something that happened just this past week. Well, the good news is, in Jesus' view, that when we make space for mourning, there is a place to go with our pain, because God is a comforter. And Jesus is describing a world to these enslaved, beaten-down people, a world in which the comfort, is God, the comfort of God is readily available. God's heart overflows with tenderness and comfort. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. He blesses the person who's so confident in God that they don't need to take matters into their own hands. In Jesus' world, there were revolutionaries. They called them in that day zealots. They were filled with zeal. 
They were so filled with zeal that they took up the sword. And to those people and to those of us who are prone to take up the sword, Jesus says to repent. Jesus says to put down your sword. That could be the sword of a sword, like a sharp thing, or it could be the sword of your tongue, the things that we say about people. Or as we get further into the Sermon on the Mount, the things that we think about people that are like sword thrusts. Jesus promises us that we have a Father who is intending to entrust to us an inheritance. He will not hold out on us. He will give to us what it is we're needing. And so we don't need always to be fighting. Not to say that we shouldn't stand up for truth, but we shouldn't stand up for truth in a, uh, a world that wields violent power. Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that word righteousness equally can mean justice. So we should hunger and thirst for justice. Uh, Michelle prayed about the, the shooting in Jacksonville. We should hunger and thirst for a world in which that can be no longer. But justice will not be sustained in this world by people who do not embody the character of Jesus. And so Jesus is pronouncing blessing on those who long to embody the passions, the character, and the face of Christ in the world. And in the midst of your many, many personal goals as you launch into this fall, I want to ask you if you have some hunger to be like Christ in some particular way. If you do, Jesus pronounces blessing on you. If you desire to be more patient, if you desire to be more generous, if you desire to be more merciful, which we'll get to in a moment, Jesus says God will fulfill your desires. He will feed you with bread and drink that renewed the heart it will make you more whole and holy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. We're in this section now about longing for the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of heaven meaning the afterlife, although we believe in that as well, Christians do. But when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of heaven, he was talking about a social reality that's existing wherever God is truly in charge. And he said in that world, the merciful would be blessed. We live in a world crying out for mercy. It is the case, I think, if you do the research that you will find that America is one of the most wealthiest nations in the world, and has more poverty than any other developed nation in the world. Where is our mercy? We live in a state that has increasing housing problems. And it's an okay thing to be looking out for ourselves. We could do no other than to look out for ourselves. But will we look beyond ourselves? A couple of years ago here in San Jose, there was a vote on the ballot to make affordable housing possible in Almaden Valley. And that got voted down. This affordable housing complex 
would not have been for homeless people that people were afraid of. It would have been for public school teachers that we voted it down because we lack mercy for the people who are teaching our children. Blessed are the merciful. You know, the scriptures warn us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And one of the most interesting teachings in all of the New Testament is that you and I, we ordinary people, all have a say in how we will experience that experience of judgment. Because in James chapter 2, verse 13, the scripture says that judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. People on a journey through the world that God is creating will be inevitably and increasingly marked by the capacity to extend mercy to people who don't deserve it. That's what mercy is. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus blesses those whose hearts are clean and whole. Jesus here is pointing out the reality, as he did in much of his teachings, that relational breakdown always begins in the heart. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, one of uh, the sects of which were called the Pharisees, never ever grasped that fact. They fixated over external rules rather than matters of what was going on in their heart, and for this reason, they were the most spiritually blind of all. Jesus was white there in front of them, and they could never identify that the man standing in front of them was the incarnation of God himself. It's a cautionary tale to us that when our hearts are broken and impure and stained, we cannot see God clearly, and we cannot see one another clearly. Problems of the heart might include things like impurity. We let our eyes take in things that stain the soul. Another heart problem could be hardness of heart. That the heart in a uh, violent world becomes defensive and calloused towards others, understandably so sometimes. Nevertheless, to our own uh, chagrin. The heart can simply be scattered. We might not have pure hearts or hard hearts. We might just have hearts that are in 50 different places, unable to attend to the person that's before us, even when they're a person that we actually love, much less a person that we would not have chosen, chosen to give ourselves to. We are scattered and impatient and not present sometimes. It's possible for the human heart to be crushed, for the hardships of life to have damaged the inner being. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. The good news here is that God knows that we cannot solve our heart's problems. He's only asking that we come to him. He's urging us to come to him and let our hearts be put back together again. I'll just wrap up here. Last one. Blessed are the peacemakers because sin always destroys our capacity to love one another. Jesus is not wanting us to be people who withhold truth. Friendships, teams, families, households, 
all human relationships need truth tellers. But speaking the truth will only have a healing effect if we look to the one who is Prince of Peace, who by his death and resurrection inaugurated an age of peace. And he will bring peace as we labor on his behalf. And the final two blessings uh, just remind us that persecution may well come, that it is not the case that if we give ourselves fully to the dream that Jesus laid out for the kingdom that he is creating, it is not the case that is a recipe for popularity. And so those of us who are just a little bit codependent, those of us who need the approval of others, those of us who shy away from conflict, Jesus calls us to repent and to say that there is some persecution that we should ready ourselves for. This is Jesus' kingdom vision. It's his great kingdom manifesto. It's what it looks like in a broken world to long for the presence of God and to long for the kingdom of God. And as we move uh, towards our time of worship, I want to ask us all to consider what dream will win your heart? What dream owns your imagination? There are all kinds of dreams, as in Jesus' day, that are alive today. Many of them are pretty good. It's just a question of whether we will make them central. From a political perspective, there's the dream of a world in which there's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That can be pretty good, although it gets a little weird sometimes. Some of us have a dream of retiring at some point. I used to think I would just work the rest of my life until I realized, what if no one wants to hire me for the rest of my life? So retirement, that's a thing. But is it the central thing that animates our existence? Some of us are just dreaming to make it to Friday in one piece. And if that is you, I, I speak a word of sympathy and compassion for you. And I want to say that I believe that God has a greater dream that would infuse meaning into your life, more meaning than simply survival. What if, as we entered into this season, the dream of Jesus was etched on our souls? What if that was the central dream that laid claim to our greatest thoughts and our best energies? Tolstoy, Gandhi, and King speak from the past, urging us to stretch our minds and imaginations and believe that a whole new world can emerge. As you start your small group again, as you come back together in the world of this church, let's set our hearts on the kingdom dream, on the kingdom dream. That's why we've given you this postcard, or this uh, bookmark, that's what it is, not postcard. I want to challenge you to uh, start each day by reading these words of blessing, these beautiful words, these extraordinarily and historically powerful words, these words that are vexing to us, 
that vex the human mind, but make promises from the heart of God. Let's close in prayer. I want to invite the worship team to come. I'd invite you to close your eyes. I want to invite you to imagine yourself on the mountain with Jesus, sitting amongst the crowds of listeners and disciples. Maybe you could connect in your inner being with what dream brought you to the feet of Jesus. What longing, what hope, what hunger or thirst has brought you into the presence of Christ? Reconnect with that. Imagine for a moment, if you can, the eyes of Jesus, eyes that pierce the soul with the fire of love. And receive these blessings as the promise of life in this season of your life. These words of blessing are broad and varied. I want to invite you to consider, is there one of them that feels most important for you today? One of them that maybe feels most significant to wrestle with? One of them that may be a whisper from the Spirit of God to you? If there's one of them, just circle it. Circle it. This is a way of saying, this has caught my attention. And as we worship, I pray. God, come and dwell with us in this space. It's our longing to be like the people of old who sat in your presence and dreamed of a whole new world ruled by a God who is a healer and a comforter. We long for the mercy and the comfort that only you can bring. And so we pray in our ordinary lives, in the pain that some of us are experiencing, satisfy our hearts first. We pray in Jesus' name.